Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 66, The Ottoman-Venetian War. So I've got some really good news for everybody. Uh, No new Patreon supporters, but a lot is going on. I'm finally working on a brand new website, uh, building it from scratch, from the ground up, trying to include a lot more kind of high quality information, a lot more ways to interact, uh, a lot more stuff that comes along with each episode, just trying to make everything better. Um, If you'd like to give me any more ideas, stuff you'd really like to see on the website, um, just go ahead and get in touch through the Facebook page or email, whatever, and let me know what you'd like to see there. Though, just be aware, I don't have unlimited time. I've gotten some great ideas to build, like custom maps and things, but I really am not uh, the kind of, I don't have the, the skills to do that. But still, I'd love all of your input. So last time, we saw Mehmet engage in a whirlwind of campaigns and conquest. In spite of a major defeat in Albania and a bloody nose in Wallachia, he still managed to conquer Serbia, Morea, Sinop, and Trebizond all in less than four years. Having just taken his massive army out of Wallachia, successfully installing Vlad the Impaler's half-brother Radu as a rival leader, if not the outright ruler of Wallachia, Mehmet was content to leave things there for now. Around the time of Mehmet's campaign in Wallachia, he had sent 23,000 soldiers under the command of a man named Sinan Bey, to attack Skanderbeg in Albania. The three-year truce was up, and somehow, in spite of the enormous army he was supporting in Wallachia, Mehmet could spare the troops there. Luckily for this new Ottoman force, Skanderbeg was at this moment campaigning in Italy alongside King Ferdinand of Naples, which brought him into conflict with Venice, which cut off trade in response. As usual, Skanderbeg really needs unconditional support from Italy, and Italy is uh, busy with its own things. Um, But fortunately for the Albanians, Skanderbeg received a letter from his wife informing him of the imminent Ottoman invasion, and he had enough time to return home to defend his country. Skanderbeg had only about 5,000 Albanian and 3,000 Italian men to face those 23,000 Ottomans. And so, he opted for an ambush in the mountains. As the Ottomans passed through a pass in the Mokra Valley, the Albanians and Italians rushed down from the mountainsides, attacking them on all sides. The Ottomans quickly fell into disarray and suffered heavy casualties. Following this victory, the road into Macedonia was open and no Ottoman force in the region could protect it. Hearing about all this, Mehmet immediately sent three armies to finish Skanderbeg once and for all. Uh, I'm tempted to count the number of armies sent against, against Skanderbeg at this point, but, well, without counting, let's just say it's a lot. The Ottomans have sent a lot of armies. But, well... Mehmet's up for three more. The first of these armies arrived a month after Sinan Bey's army had been defeated. It, too, was ambushed in roughly the same area and 
totally destroyed. Another army, 18,000 strong, then left to, to meet Skanderbeg, and it too was attacked and destroyed. But the third army was different. It was commanded by a man who had served alongside Skanderbeg in Anatolia years before when he was, well, a vassal of the Sultan. He gathered 30,000 cavalry and entered Albania along a more cautious route, scouting ahead the entire way. A wise and prudent move, at least until the 4,000-strong scouting force was ambushed and almost totally destroyed. Furious, the Ottoman commander requested Skanderbeg meet him in open battle, but was refused. I mean, let's remember, Skanderbeg is, I can't remember, maybe in his 50s, late 50s by this point. He's not about to go challenge someone in open battle uh, for his own pride. No, he's too smart for that. Soon, Skanderbeg mounted a surprise attack on the Ottoman camp and, well, big surprise, utterly defeated the army. The remaining force and its commander returned to Constantinople to be pardoned by the Sultan and were given mercy. Still, Skanderbeg, with fewer than 10,000 soldiers, had defeated three armies with a combined force of nearly 50,000, all within a single month. Really, I, th I think we all can realize that by this point that Skanderbeg is just a remarkable character. I, I mentioned it before. You go to Albania, you see his name everywhere. He's this great national hero, but you don't tend to hear why. It's, you know, they say, okay, he fought the Ottomans, blah, blah, blah. But really diving into what he did, the, the man is just unreal in what he managed to accomplish. Still, while his armies, while Skanderbeg was defeating these Ottoman armies in Macedonia, Mehmet had been busy marching an army to conquer the Greek island of Lesbos. Let's remember that... You know, when Mehmet loses an army in uh, or three in Albania, it doesn't really slow him down that much. The Ottoman Empire at this period has a lot of manpower reserves. So Mehmet is focusing on Lesbos. This island was just a short boat ride from the Anatolian mainland, so it was relatively easy to conquer. Now, Lesbos had traded hands many times in the previous centuries, but following the fall of Constantinople, it had been taken by a powerful Genoese family, who quickly became Ottoman vassals. By the time Mehmet's army and navy arrived, the island's main city and fortress were preparing for a siege. Now this Genoese family was very annoyed because, well I just mentioned they were Ottoman vassals and they had never failed to pay their tribute. But, as we know, by this point the Ottomans dominated the Aegean and Mehmet clearly didn't care very much about this technicality. I mean, true, if he treated his vassals badly, it's possible that other states would be more hesitant to become his vassals. But at this point, with the growing Ottoman power, we can assume that most states that become Ottoman vassals aren't doing it to get a sweet deal. They're doing it because they don't want to be conquered outright. And so the quality uh, with which Mehmet treats his vassals probably didn't play a big role. And so he felt comfortable treating them like garbage, and, well, conquering them. So, a siege was prepared, and Mehmet decided to leave this to one of his generals and return home. The city held out for mere days against overwhelming Ottoman assaults. Mehmet soon returned to oversee the transfer of the island and its fortresses, once it was conquered. 
Some on the island were punished, some of the population, while others were left alone, and a portion of the island's population and nobility were actually sent to help repopulate Constantinople. Now, we know that the Byzantines before them and the Ottomans have a frequent policy of just deciding, like, we need a larger population in this place or that place, so we're just going to take these people and stick them over there. No doubt the modern population of Bulgaria uh, has a lot of its kind of genetic diversity from these kinds of policies because many, many, many times in our story, we've seen the Byzantines sort of take a chunk of people from somewhere in Anatolia and stick them into Thrace. Well, at this moment, what the Ottomans needed was to repopulate Constantinople. Remember, I mean, off the top of my head, I think when they conquered it, the city's population was maybe 40,000 people, uh, a fraction of what it used to be. It used to the, I think, again, off the top of my head, the city once had hundreds of thousands of residents. And so the Ottomans wanted the city to be their great capital. And so they were going to take any population they could, stick it in the city, boost up the population, and turn it into, uh, well, a place that could generate tax revenue that would look amazing and that would... Uh, well, flourish with trade and all the things that you want from a city. So then, just about at the end of 1642, Hungarian King Matthias Corvinus went to Transylvania to negotiate with Vlad the Impaler. Now, if you remember, earlier in the year, Vlad had been deposed by the Ottomans in, flav in favor of his brother Radu. Oddly enough, weird little side story, it seems that Radu was favored by Mehmet in part because the two were lovers, leading to Radu's nickname, The Beautiful. Uh, this actually seems to be pretty well uh, kind of backed up by the evidence, so there's an interesting twist. Anyways, Vlad was hoping that Corvinus would help him regain his throne, obviously. But instead, Corvinus presented three forged letters in which Vlad allegedly offered to collaborate with the Ottomans in exchange for being returned to power. With these forged, uh, forged documents in hand, uh, Corvinus imprisoned Vlad in Visegrad in Hungary. So, once again, Matthias Corvinus proves to be not that great of an ally. We've seen several times he just sort of uh, switches sides at will. And now he's mad at Vlad the Impaler, so he's on the bad list. By the spring of 1643, Several things were really happening at once. In Morea, local Ottoman and Venetian commanders were fighting each other. Of course, Venice and the Ottomans had fought before in that strange battle in Thessalonica. Remember, uh, the kind of Byzantine population gave the city to the Venetians in the hopes that they might defend it. Yeah, that, that happened. But still, overall, Venice and the Ottomans had been trading partners and had not gotten along okay, even though Venice was always very afraid of Ottoman expansion into the Western Balkans, kind of infringing on some of their territory there. But now, conflict seems on the horizon. Again, the Venetians want to check Ottoman expansion, and they're watching their potential list of Ottoman allies slowly dwindle, and so they're getting nervous, and they want to start a war now when they feel they can still come out ahead. Now, the exact spark of this war was rather odd. The Ottoman commander in Athens had an Albanian slave who stole 100,000 silver aspers and escaped to the Venetian city of Koron in southern Greece. There, he converted to Christianity. As a result, the Venetians felt justified refusing to hand him back to the Ottomans. This was enough of a pretext for that local Ottoman commander to start a war. This kicked off 
an Ottoman, with an Ottoman attack on the Venetian fortress of Lepanto, but that attack failed. Shortly after, though, the Ottomans did succeed in taking the Venetian city of Argos. But as spring turned into summer, the Venetian Senate itself was actually still debating whether to declare war and escalate the conflict or, well, just negotiate and allow this kind of local scuffle that had broken out in the Peloponnesus in uh, southern Greece to just, well, end. In the meantime, in addition to carrying out the Macedonian campaign against Skanderbeg, possible actions against the Venetians, the conquest of Lesbos, well, Mehmet was preparing an invasion of Bosnia. Because, you know, he had too much free time on his hands, obviously. Now, Bosnian king Stephen Tomasevich had recently stopped paying tribute to the Ottomans and become a Hungarian vassal instead. And so, well, there was a good enough case for war. We have to note here just how much of the resources of the empire had expanded. Again, I mentioned this before, but the Ottomans keep losing army after army and yet it still manages to conduct simultaneous offensive operations within one season in Greece, in uh, Lesbos, uh, and in Bosnia, as well as well, recently in Albania. I mean, there are no kind of European states I'm aware of at this time that would be capable of uh, conducting operations like that. And it really speaks to the resources and the organization of the Ottomans. But anyways... Knowing an invasion was imminent, King Stephen desperately sought help from other Christian states. But none, Venice and Naples in particular, were willing to offer anything. Hungary, okay, Hungary offered some tacit support, but nothing like what Stephen was expecting. Now around this period, Hungary and Venice even concluded a mutual defense treaty against the Ottomans, as the Venetians debated, still, whether to declare war in response to that fighting in Morea. But still, in spite of all this, no one was willing to help Bosnia. To make matters worse, the population of Bosnia was somewhat inclined towards the Ottoman rule anyways. They were tired of incessant internal warfare in this mountainous and really rather difficult to rule region. King Stephen was desperate. He tried to buy loyalty in some areas, inspire loyalty in other areas, but it didn't work. Now, this may seem very weird, but you know, why why was the population of the of Bosnia in favor of Ottoman rule over local rule? But remember, Bosnia in the 15th century, just like today, was very religiously and ethnically diverse. Its population knew that it would have far more religious tolerance as well as lower taxes under the Ottomans. And this is an important thing to note because it has come up and will come up again and again in this podcast, that there are times when people will fight a foreign invader to defend their ethnic, religious, whatever kind of group, right? For a sense of nationalism, a sense of us versus them. But there are other times when people are far more practical and are willing to give up elements of their identity or autonomy for greater security, lower taxes, more prosperity, all the things that in this case, the Ottomans could offer better than their king. Now, we talked about this in relation to the Janissaries, right? Some families bitterly resisted the taking of their children while others welcomed it, each for their own reasons. It's just a reminder that people are complex. They do things for their own reasons and not for the reasons we like to imagine they do, right? We, we like to, to pretend that historical human beings are rather two-dimensional. 
Okay, so the population of Bosnia wasn't with King Stephen. But to make matters even worse, Stephen's son actually sought Mehmet's help in conflict with a rival. This brought things to a head, and King Stephen was forced to make a choice about just what he was going to do. His choice was resistance. He refused his vassal payment to Mehmet and invited an invasion he likely knew he stood no chance against. He wrote in a letter to the Pope, quote, I am the first to expect the storm. My father predicted to your predecessor, Nicholas V, and the Venetians, the fall of Constantinople. He was not believed. Now I prophesy about myself. If you trust and aid me, I shall be saved. If not, I shall perish, and many will be ruined with me. End quote. Stephen still had some hope, but well, some hope that some Christian states might still come to his aid, that things still might change, but he would be bitterly disappointed. In the spring of 1463, Mehmet marched into Bosnia at the head of a massive army, perhaps around 100,000 strong. The presence of this force nearby convinced the Albanian rebels to sue for peace themselves, in spite of Skanderbeg's objections. King Stephen attempted to stall, to hold for foreign aid, but fortress after fortress fell to the Ottomans' overwhelming numbers. Stephen sent his family and their wealth to Ragusa or Dalmatia, but the king himself, hiding out in a fortress, was betrayed by a subject and captured. Stephen, the last king of Bosnia, was killed by Mehmed. Accounts differ, one stating he was beheaded by the sultan, another that the sultan did it him himself. Yet another claims that he was flayed and used for target practice, but what was important was that Bosnia fell quickly after the death of its king. Still, Herzegovina did remain independent, although from the moment Bosnia fell, the Ottomans would begin slowly taking portions of Herzegovinian territory. Now, all of this together effectively destroyed the last buffer state between the Ottomans and Hungary. With both Serbia and Bosnia conquered, Hungary now had a long and direct border with the Ottomans, raising the possibility of an Ottoman invasion of Hungary itself. While the Hungarians had declined to support Bosnia, as that war was winding down, the Venetian Senate finally voted to declare war at the end of July. Seeing yet another opportunity, the Pope declared a crusade and assisted in organizing an alliance between Venice, Hungary, Skanderbeg, and the Duke of Burgundy. They also began talking to the kings of Iran, the Karamanids, and the Crimean Khanate. Now a quick note on what the Crimean Khanate was, we haven't really talked about it. Essentially, it represented the remnants of the Golden Horde as they had gradually morphed into the Tatars, as we've referred to them. In spite of its Mongolian roots, it was now very much a Turkic state, and based in its capital, what would become Bakhtasaray. Now, I visited this very beautiful city before Russia illegally annexed a peninsula and began to allow the city portions of the historical city to be demolished and to be kind of quote-unquote restored in a way that really genuinely destroyed the buildings. So, it's... I know, it's a tragic place. It's a very, very beautiful city, home to the Crimean Tatars, 
uh, a group of people treated terribly by Stalin, um, pushed into central Russia, what's now Tatarstan. But I'll, I'll try to include some photos from my trip on the website with this uh, with this particular episode. You can see just how beautiful Bakhtasaray was and what a special place it remains. Okay, so the participants were clearly attempting to turn this into a major crusade, all the Pope's allies. And with every possible enemy of the Ottomans involved, uh, the idea was to kind of crush them in a pincer move, to then divide up Ottoman territories in the Balkans between the victors, and to, yes, reestablish the Byzantine Empire in the process. Remember, some members of the royal family were still alive. And so that was the idea of the crusade, to completely annihilate the Ottoman Empire. As a part of this war, the Hungarian army rushed in to take a vital Bosnian fortress to better establish this new portion of their Ottoman frontier. This included the vital fortress of Jais, which the Hungarians captured from the Bosnians before managing to desperately hold off the Ottomans until their main army arrived there in 1464. The Hungarian defenders then managed to hold the, the fortress until the main Hungarian army arrived along with the onset of winter forcing the Ottoman army to retreat to Sofia. Thus, this mighty fortress was established as a vital Hungarian fortress on the Bosnian frontier. By the way, if you'd like to read more about Bosnia during the Ottoman period and onward, check out Bridge Over the River Drina by Ivo Andrich. I'm reading it right now, quite enjoying it. It won the Nobel Prize for Literature, so you know it's good. Anyways, the main Hungarian army that came for the rescue of this uh, Bosnian fortress wasn't just any Hungarian army, though. It was the so-called Black Army. Now, unsurprisingly, the son of John Hunyadi grew up steeped in military tradition. And so the young Matthias Corvinus read Caesar's writings of his campaigns in Gaul and was inspired to create a more professional army for Hungary, which would mimic that of Caesar. And so the young boy as he grew older, put together a professional army drawn from Czechs, Germans, and Hungarians. The idea of this black army was to professionalize itself, to reform the kingdom's monetary and taxation system to support it. But besides professionalization, this army was also thoroughly modern in the tactics and technology that it employed. For example, a full quarter of the soldiers were in, equipped with arquebuses, a kind of early form of rifle. And more than that was really more than double the number of such equipped soldiers in a typical European army at the time. Still, not surprisingly, this made this army tremendously expensive. But for now, Corvinus managed its upkeep. By this period, the army had fewer than 10,000 soldiers, but it will grow in the coming decades. But anyways, with an early form of this black army, Bosnia was divided and became the new frontier between the Ottomans, Hungarians, and others, namely the Republic of Ragusa and some Venetian territories, uh, just as this Ottoman-Venetian war was getting started. So to kind of recap quickly, in 1462, Mehmet invaded Wallachia, was defeated by Skanderbeg in Macedonia, and conquered Lesbos. In 1463, conflict began between the Ottomans and the Venetians in Morea, while the Ottomans invaded Bosnia. By the time the war in Bosnia was over, Venice had declared war, and Hungary joined the Crusade alliance, invading the rest of Bosnia to establish a new border. So, 
While the Ottomans and Hungarians were facing off in Bosnia, the Pope gathered an army in Italy, and a Venetian army landed in Morea to reinforce their possessions there. The Venetians were met with initial success as they retook Argos from the Ottomans. Uh, it had been lost about a year before, and managed to reinforce the Hexamillion Wall, which was a fortification across that narrow isthmus of Corinth, which connected Morea, the Peloponnesus, to the rest of Greece and the Balkans. Still, these Venetian reinforcements failed to conquer the fortress at Corinth from the Ottomans, which rested on the southern side of this Hexamillion Wall. So, well, with the Ottomans on both sides, how effective could the wall really be? Mehmet responded to this new war with two actions. First, he created a new shipyard in Constantinople to build a fleet which could challenge the Venetians. In the meantime, he sent his Grand Vizier Mahmud Pasha Angelovic, a Serbian-born man who was taken as a child to be a Janissary, or possibly as a noble hostage who rose to be grand, become Grand Vizier, we're not quite sure, but still kind of an example of how foreigners could enter the Ottoman service and rise within the Ottoman ranks to become Grand Vizier, which, remember, is kind of like Prime Minister. So, anyways, Mahmud Pasha Angelovic uh, headed to Morea to deal with the Venetian army there. His Ottoman force quickly swept the northern Peloponnesus as the Venetian army fled demoralized. The great Hexamillion Wall was razed to the ground and Venetian holdings were reduced to just a few fortresses in the south. The Sultan had been marching to Morea with yet another army, but upon hearing of the Grand Vizier's success, he instead turned it around to go towards Bosnia. There, as we've already discussed, he attempted to retake Yais, that uh, important Bosnian fortress, but was forced to retreat as Corvinus arrived with the Black Army. Still, shortly afterwards, more Ottoman reinforcements forced the Hungarians, in their turn, to retreat. Then, to make matters worse, before he and his army could launch from Italy to aid the war against the Ottomans, Pope Pius II died, leaving that army he gathered to, well, go home. So, the dream... The dream of this crusade really died with the Pope. The war dragged on. You know, the Venetians were besieging the capital of the newly captured Lesbos to try to retake it. Uh, about six weeks this lasted, and then the Ottoman fleet arrived and they ran off. The Venetian fleet then resorted to kind of hanging around the Bosphorus in a pointless show of strength. But the overall point here is that the Pope died, and with him, any hope for kind of a broader European alliance. By midsummer, a new Venetian commander had landed in Morea and was now attempting to reverse the situation with the limited resources available to him. Essentially, this quickly devolved into the Venetians simply defending their fortresses while the Ottomans moved all around the region with complete impunity. Meanwhile, upon hearing of the Pope's death and knowing that no Italian army was coming, Skanderbeg set out to attack Ottoman Macedonia. Following his recent defeats there, the Sultan had reinforced Ohrid, the main fortress near the Albanian border. Skanderbeg marched there with some Venetian soldiers and used a classic tactic, sending forces ahead and then having them feign a retreat to draw the Ottomans out. This worked, and the Ottomans were ambushed and slaughtered, using, losing around 10,000 soldiers. Still, the fortress at Ohrid was too strong to be taken by the Albanians. And in any case, Skanderbeg really hadn't come to conquer. 
He was simply there to aid in the broader Venetian war. And so, satisfied with his victory, he returned home to Albania. Now by this time, nearly two years of war in Morea was really taking its toll, and foraging for food and supplies there became increasingly difficult, slowing down operations for the Ottomans. As the war dragged on, Mehmet sent peace envoys to the Venetians. However, they rejected the offer. Still, not all the powers in the region were feeling so confident. Hungary realized that with the death of the Pope, it couldn't really expect any aid from the rest of Europe, although the Pope had sent some money before he died. And so, well, they called off their planned invasion of the Ottoman Empire and agreed to peace in 1465. King Matthias Corvinus then turned his attention to more internal reforms and to better establish his power and pay for that shiny new black army. And so with the northern front of the war settled, the war on the seas fairly inconclusive and things in Morea kind of settling down to stalemate, Mehmet decided to focus on Skanderbeg, sending an Albanian janissary taken in the Devshirme with a fearsome reputation with a new army at his command to face the old Albanian commander. Skanderbeg's plan was typical, to trick the Ottomans into thinking his force was too small to resist, then ambushing and destroying them. Instead, however, the Ottomans simply charged headlong at the Albanians, leading to, instead of an ambush, a slugging match where both sides took heavy losses. Here, ultimately, the superior morale of the Albanian force won the day, and the Ottomans eventually fell back. But the Ottomans took heavy sorry, the Albanians took heavy casualties, and some of their forces continued to pursue the Ottomans and were captured once the Ottomans kind of regained their composure. These included several of Skanderbeg's best commanders, including Moisi, that man who had betrayed Skanderbeg for the Ottomans before being defeated by him and begging forgiveness from the Sultan. Well, Moisi was captured and publicly executed in Constantinople. But overall, the first Battle of Vaikal, the one that just happened there, saw heavy casualties for both sides. But as usual, the Ottomans, well, they could take heavy losses without blinking. But Skanderbeg, well, he couldn't. He attempted to bargain for his captured officers, but Mehmet was in no mood to show them mercy, and they were all tortured and killed. Two months later, the Ottomans and their Albanian commander were back with another army, but they were surrounded by Skanderbeg, attacked, and took heavy losses. Still, without any pressure on other fronts, Mehmet was comfortable devoting more and more soldiers to the goal of defeating Skanderbeg once and for all. Next time, we're going to see how this ongoing Ottoman-Venetian war progresses, and in particular, how Mehmet escalates the Albanian front with an eye on destroying Skanderbeg. So, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech.